I'm going to be talking in this sermon in Acts 24, 1 through 27. Uh, we are going to be looking at how we can possess peace in storms. And uh, that, that's very easy to talk about on a Sunday morning in church when things seem pretty peaceful. Uh, but I've been to, uh, I was in New Orleans after Katrina hit. Um, we were listening to the news. We saw that this big hurricane Category 5 was moving towards New Orleans, and, and we had anxiety in Illinois, a long ways away from us. And could I preach this sermon in New Orleans when Katrina was on its way? Can we possess peace in the face of storms? I had the opportunity to go down to New Orleans after uh, Katrina had hit, and it was a couple of years later. There were teams that went down ahead of me. I was one of the later teams that went, and uh, I stood where the wall broke, where the levee broke, and I looked behind me and saw that the houses that were gone, just the water came through and just those houses were disappeared. And then there were other houses where they had these red circles on them. Anybody go down to Katrina and see these? And they would put the, yeah, you remember those lines? And they would say, they would be, are there people in here? Are there animals in here? Like they were marking off for people to pick up those who didn't survive. It was a really hard thing to see. And they tell you that, I haven't ever experienced this, I've seen pictures of it, but in a hurricane, that when you're in the eye of that storm, it's peaceful. There aren't clouds directly above you. The wind isn't blowing. So devastation happens around you, but yet there is this spot of peace in the sweet spot of difficulties. Christ modeled for us that that can be true for us. Christ modeled it as he went to the cross, as he went willingly, as he went openly, as he didn't return evil for evil, but he returned kindness in the face of evil. And Paul models it for us today here in Acts 24. We can possess peace in Christ through the storm. Acts 24, 1 through 27 Starting in verses 1 through 9, we see that God is at work when we are slandered. Have you ever been slandered? I think most of us have. Can't really get through junior high without a fair amount of slander. But people continue to talk poorly of you. You've been slandered by a friend. Have you found out somebody that you thought was your friend wasn't your friend? Well, here we see Paul being slandered by people that he came, he identified with, people that he saw as his kin, people his, they were fellow Jews, temple worshipers. He expected that these were his people. And he brought to, came to bring them good news. And we see in these nine verses that they are slandered, and yet God is at work in this slander, just as he is for us when we walk with Christ through these kinds of storms. Starting in verse 1, it says, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. So we pick up the story where Paul was whisked away on a, on a horse and in two days made his way to Caesarea. 
And he's been held in prison. And now it says after five days, after five days that Paul has left, they are now there presenting their case. That's a remarkably fast time. If they ride horses, it's a two-day travel. If they walk, it's four days to get from Jerusalem to Caesarea. So they discover that Paul has been whisked away. They get their plan together, the leadership, the high priest and some other leaders and this lawyer, Tertullus, and they head to make their case against Paul. They're in a hurry to slander Paul. They can't wait to get there and they're hoping within five days to get a death sentence for Paul. After five days, the high priest, Ananias, this should have been the one of the highest character in the temple. The one who shepherds his people with grace and goodness. And he is one of those bringing this slander against Paul. They lay before the governor their case, Felix. Verse 2, And when they had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. So verse 2, Tertullus knows how to get what he wants in court. In a Roman court, you start with complimenting the judge. He's going to the governor, and he's telling him what the governor wants to hear, he thinks. Does Tertullus believe this? Well, shortly after this, the Jewish people are going to run Felix out of leadership, saying that he didn't support them and he wasn't a good leader. But they're now giving him compliments that have nothing behind it except the goal of getting what they want. Have you known people that not only slander, but people that just tell you what you want to hear? They will say whatever it takes to get what they want. Tertullus comes, this lawyer comes and sends, speaks so kindly of Felix, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. I wonder what he was saying on the way to Caesarea. I wonder what he really thought. I don't think this is what he really thinks. I think he is setting up a plan to win to slander Paul and get Paul with a death sentence. Reforms are being made for this nation. Verse 3, In every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. We not only think the world of you, but we're thankful for you, Felix. You're pretty awesome. Now what's Paul feeling as this Proceeding is beginning. He's sitting there quietly. He's waiting his turn. As he's hearing this, when we see his response, his response is remarkably calm, remarkably measured, honest, and not necessarily meant to bring him peace or a good result. He actually affirms one of the accusations that's about to be made. He's going through this storm with Christ. He has peace with Christ. Have you been through a storm and felt that peace? Do you know what it is to be slandered and to remain high in character and know that Christ 
is your defender. So having said that he's very thankful for his leadership and that his leadership is awesome, best leadership ever, we love you, Felix, Felix, Felix. Now verse 5, he says, For we have found this man a plague. Now he's, now he's taking a shot at Paul. He's not just a bad guy. He's a plague. He's evil. He's toxic. He's bad for our empire, the Roman Empire, which is what he's going to argue right now more than he's going to bad for being a Jew. He's a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. All right, these are his charges against him. One, he's a plague. He's a sickness. He's an illness. That word actually, when used of birds, is birds that are infected. He's an infection. And then he says he stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So he stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. Is this a true statement? Actually, in a way, it kind of is. Paul has been stirring things up. He goes into the synagogue. I mean, he doesn't mean to bring harm. But people have had a visceral reaction to his presentation of the gospel. And his life has been threatened again and again and again. And just the promise of him presenting the gospel in Jerusalem caused a mob and the Ephesian Jews who came to town for the celebration of Pentecost, they came to town and stirred up a riot against him. So everyone's talking about this guy is a plague. This guy is the problem. They're stirring up and... So who was the one who stirred up the riots? Maybe Paul's words caused riots, but actually it was the Ephesian Jews that stirred up the riot. But maybe Paul gives them that one. Maybe my words did cause dissension and visceral anger in people. The next charge is that uh, he's the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. What is the Nazarenes? Well, I don't think that's what the Christians called themselves, but Jesus was from Nazareth. And what he's saying, he's aligning with the place where nothing good comes from. Even one of Jesus' followers said, can any good thing come from Nazareth? So in any way to make, they called it the way or being Christian. Those words were now in use to describe this movement of being Christ followers. And he's saying he's the ringleader. He's the guy that's in charge of this sect of the Nazarenes. So it's meant to be derisive, but Paul doesn't actually dispute this one. Jesus is from Nazareth. Jesus does identify with outcasts. This is one of the great things about our faith, is that our Lord and Savior was raised in Nazareth and became the friend of sinners and identified with those of us who were outcasts other places. So as Jesus was rejected, Paul is being rejected, and he's saying ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Paul's not going to disagree with that one, actually. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. 
That's the next accusation. He even tried to profane the temple. Why would this matter in a Roman court? They're, at this point, they are trying to describe all of, um, all of the accusations against Paul from a Roman court perspective. If they were in a Jewish court, they would tell it differently. They're trying to say that Paul is causing riots. He is aligning with this Jesus who said he was king of the Jews. He was trying to overthrow Caesar. That's not true. When he said he was king of the Jews, he was aligning with David the king from 2 Samuel 7, but they're saying it in a way that makes Paul look as bad as possible and Christianity look as bad as possible. You're just a sect from Nazareth. And now he says that He's against the the temple itself, and they make this accusation about what he did in the temple, which wasn't true at all. He wasn't trying to profane the temple. He actually was going there to present alms and sacrifices. He actually was there to care for the poor. But they paint themselves as the savior of the temple. Why does Rome care about the temple? Well, it's Herod's temple. Rome built this temple. It's one of their works. And to have one of their temples defamed is an offense. This isn't just religious, this is political for them. That's Herod's temple. That's Rome's work. They took credit for it. Well, in verse 8, he finishes his presentation against Paul. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. They are trying to put Paul back on his heels. They're trying to make a storm so that Paul can't defend himself. They're trying to get him talking about little things, but by just being prepared and setting the stage and winning Felix's favor, they're hoping they can get a death sentence today. Verse 9, the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So here are these Jewish leaders, including the high priest, who are slandering Paul. Maybe Paul is here, and and they're all over here on their side, and they're coming before Felix. They have said, Felix, you're awesome. We love you. We're thankful for you. I'm sure you're going to make the right decision here. This guy over here is a jerk. He's a plague. He's causing all these dissensions. There's no way he can answer for himself. And we are all here to affirm it, and we are trained. We are leaders. The one leading is one who's been trained in the law, and we are all your faithful servants here in the temple, including the high priests. They've joined in the charge. This is a group versus Paul. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt when you're standing alone and everyone's picking on you and everyone's making fun of you and everyone's making a charge against you and they're all belittling you and they're pushing you away. Maybe it's happened in family. Maybe it's happened in school. Maybe it's happened at work. I want you to know that Jesus is bigger than the slander. Jesus endured slander for us. And he is at work when we are slandered. God is working when others are working against us. 
So when we look at the storm that's coming and we hear about it on the news or we see it and we have to go to school again and we have to go to work again and we've got to go back to that family and those things that are just broken and hard. I want you to know that God is at work in that. That God is using that. And as much as these men want to slander Paul and bring about their... I mean, they probably were pretty confident it was going to work. Felix is going to want to keep us happy. Well, we'll see now that God empowers our defense. In verse 10, And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, All right, can you imagine that moment? You have your day in court. You have your moment to speak your case. Has anybody besides me done that and like been tongue-tied and not sure what to say and lay there in bed late at night wishing you'd said this or said that? When you have that opportunity to speak, how often do we say what we mean and what's right? The promise in Christ is that we, if we go through storms with him, he will give us the words to say in that storm. If we sin along with those who are sinning, then that promise isn't there. But if we choose to walk <clears throat> with Christ through the storm, all of a sudden there is an eye of peace. Paul's looked at, he gets the nod from the governor. Go ahead, Paul, what are you going to say? And this is Paul's response. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Notice that he said nothing untrue here. He's been polite and kind, but he has not honored Felix in the same way. Maybe a lawyer would say, Paul, you missed an opportunity here. You should have kissed up to the man. You should have said something flowery. You should have made something. Exaggerate, embellish a little bit. Tell him he's your best friend. Your life's on the line here. You see, Paul is convinced that God is the real judge, not Felix. And that God is right there, right now. And he's right there in your work. He's right there in your home. He's right there in your trials. He's in New Orleans, in the storm. He is the one who brings peace. So Paul doesn't have to treat Felix in a way like he has all the power here because Felix does not have all the power here. God has all the power here. So he tells him the truth, and he's kind, born from his peace. I cheerfully make my defense. Really? Cheerfully, after listening to this, after running for your life through the night, guys making vows that they're going to kill you, you cheerfully make your defense? Dude, come on. That's not human, that's divine. That's peace. Verse 11, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. He says, it has been a very short time. When did I have the time to start the mobs? I mean, if we're going to talk about the truth, it's not like I was hanging out in the temple and starting. I went to the temple one day and they arrested me. The mob tried to kill me. 
So let's look back at the facts. Let's talk about the facts of their evidence against me. I've been there for 12 days when I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. There isn't one place that I was stirring things up. What is this accusation? These people that are before you are not even eyewitnesses of what happened. This is hearsay. So he tells the truth. He tells them what really happened. Notice he doesn't slander back. He just speaks the truth. He doesn't say, let me tell you about these guys. Let me tell you what they did. Verse 13, neither can they prove to you that what they now bring, against, bring up against me, they can't prove it. They, can't, they haven't brought any witnesses that actually saw what they're claiming I did. Verse 14, but this I confess to you that according to the way, named for the church, named for the, what God's doing with these believers in Jesus Christ that have been baptized, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. He identifies with the high priest and identifies with the Jews and said, we come from the same camp. What I'm preaching to you is part of the law and the, and the prophets. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. I am not deconstructing I am not dishonoring Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I'm not dishonoring Moses. I'm suggesting that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. I am part of the way. I worship God, and I worship God through Jesus Christ. In verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. We saw up on the screen earlier Ezekiel 34:14. In Ezekiel 34:14 it talks about the resurrection that we will be raised one day. And this faith in Jesus Christ is the solution to that. This is how Felix you can get to heaven. This is high priest, Ananias, how you can get to heaven. Tertullus, you can get to heaven. Paul is witnessing to the people that want him dead. He's loving them. Peace that doesn't make sense to us. Daniel 12, 2 as well. It speaks of a day when we will stand before the throne and give an account. This is not a new sect, but the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. Verse 16, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience but toward both God and man. As Paul says that, I can't help but believe that he's thinking God's listening right now. That he's thinking cognitively, Felix, you think you're in control and you've got this, and Ananias, you think that you can 
manipulate this. And Tertullus, you think that you knowing law are going to be able to be bigger than God and get it done faster than God wants it done. My day will come when I go home, but God will decide that, not you. Unbelievable confidence born from faith in God. This storm will not be the end of me unless God decides it'll be the end of me. I imagine being in New Orleans when Katrina hit and that water rose. I imagine the anxiety I would feel when you saw that first crack on that wall that would come down. I imagine my heart would be pumping. I imagine anxiety would be through the roof. I imagine adrenaline would be going through me. But can you imagine someone doing that in Christ? Can you imagine going through that storm and having peace that makes no sense? That's Jesus on the cross. That's Jesus loving the guy and leading the guy to salvation next to him who lived a life of failure and was hurling insults at him earlier in the crucifixion and now he turns to Jesus and Jesus accepts him warmly. When we go through storms with Christ, we love with God's love. We love with abandon. It's not just peace. We have joy in difficulties. We have, there is something supernatural that God does that aligns us with Christ going through difficulties where we get to share in his sufferings and he shares in ours. It's something personal between us and our Savior. Paul takes pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. Both now, he's looking at it from the perspective that God is listening to what's happening, but also in the future, he realizes that one day I'm going to stand before the living God, and I want what I'm saying right now to be what he would have wanted me to say and what I'm doing right now, what he would have wanted me to do. I recognize this is just a breath. We are but a vapor, and this time on earth, I want to count so that it declares with everything in me that I believe in Jesus Christ, and he's my hope. And there is no storm, and there is no slander and there is no person that can thwart my relationship with God hallelujah so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward toward both God and man verse 17 now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings it had been six years since Paul had been in the temple he'd been out away from Jerusalem He returns, and one day in the temple, and they arrest him and say he causes riots. And they have this fervor against him. And all he did was come to bring alms and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple, because that was the claim against him, that he'd come in unclean and brought in someone that was not the right person to bring into the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, some Jews from Asia. So there were some people that stirred up the crowd. There were some people that did evil. 
He doesn't say that here. They followed Paul to Jerusalem. They stirred up the crowd. They told lies about Paul. And now he brings them into the defense. But some Jews from Asia, oh, by the way, pause, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation. Shouldn't I be able to speak to my actual accusers? Why aren't they here? Should they have anything against me? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. You see, he stood before the council and also testified to Jesus Christ. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. I am here declaring that what was promised in Ezekiel and what was promised in Daniel and what was promised for us through Christ, that the resurrection is going to happen. That when we do baptism today and and we go under the water, it's as if we identify with Christ in his death. And when we come out of the water, we identify with Christ in his resurrection. And in identifying in him in his resurrection, we declare that the the grave has no handle on us. It can't hold us. It has no dominion over us. And death does not control us. The end of our story is not the grave. The end of the story is the resurrection. That's what I declare, and for this I'm on trial. God empowers our defense. I want to be clear that God doesn't empower your defense just because you're Christian. God doesn't empower your defense so that you can get ahead in the world and be the best lawyer on the planet. God empowers your defense when you're defending Christ. That's what we're here for. It will cost us things. That's actually a promise that following Christ will cost us. But the defense that we're talking about that God empowers is the defense of the gospel. And we can rejoice that Jesus was first being slandered. Jesus was first in suffering in the church. Jesus was first in being raised from the dead, and we are just followers of his. Also see that God uses the evil intentions of people in verses 22 to 27. I think this is one that we have a hard time believing. As I have heard people talk, they give so much power to people in politics in medicine, in the world, saying, look at them. They have all this power, but the reality is they only have power that God allows them to have, and God's good purposes will be accomplished. And the worst moment of humanity when Jesus was carried to the cross, God was doing his greatest act of love. Who won that day? Did Satan win or did God win? We all won in Christ because of man's evil intentions. God uses the evil intentions of people. The most significant way we see this where it's clearly stated is in Genesis chapter 50, where it says what man meant for evil, God meant for good. Joseph 
wanting to be murdered by his brothers, sold into slavery, Potiphar's wife. He's like a ping pong ball being beat around by people, has no control, and yet God is using all of that to save the nation at the perfect time. And Joseph is just a foreshadowing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That the evil intentions of man, and Jesus did not allow the evil intentions of man. He would say, it's not my time yet. It's not my time yet. It's not my time yet. And then finally, in John chapter 12, he says that it's time to be glorified. And what evil man intended, even with the sign over his head, king of the Jews, was actually true. He was king. But people meant it for derision. Verse 22, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. So that seems pretty nice. He's being measured. He ends the case with not decided. But we're going to keep Paul in prison. But we'll find out before the end of this that that isn't actually his intention. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So he is kept in the palace under guard, but it's a loose guard and his friends are allowed to bring him food and clothing and the parchments and writing materials. And Paul, in his imprisonment, writes the prison epistles. And some would say it was from Caesarea. Some would say it was from Rome. It was from prison. And God established a place and people around him where he could send letters because this imprisonment was set up by God to have the freedom for him to be attended by others. Now, did Felix do that because he knew it was going to turn out good for us in the 21st century and that we'd have some more books in the Bible? No. We're going to see that Felix did it because he wanted a bribe. This was for evil. In verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Notice that Paul is not defending himself. He's not saying, Dude, it's been long enough. Decide. Set me free. He's fighting for Felix and his wife to become Christians. He's using every opportunity to speak of the excellencies of his Savior. He knows that's why he's here. He's speaking not about his defense. He's reasoning about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. He's telling them about faith in Jesus Christ, which will, the only thing that will give us the goods that we need, the defense that we need before the Savior. He's telling Felix that you think you're the judge. You're not. God is the judge, and you're going to answer to him. And if you don't put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have no hope. I don't know how that gets you out of prison, but that's not his point. His point 
is that he knew he was in this storm with a purpose. That God placed him here. And even though Felix had evil intentions towards Paul, which we'll see in the next verse, Paul continues to fight for his salvation. In verse 26, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. Now we know why Felix gave him access to his friends. Now we know why Felix brought him before him. He didn't want to hear the gospel. He wanted Paul to say, hey, by the way, can we give you some money so you can get me out of prison? He wanted a bribe. That was Felix's intention. So you have the Jewish leader's intention, let's kill Paul. You have Felix's intention, which is let's make some money and let's keep the Jews happy. Let's make a political decision. And Paul's intention is to bring the gospel wherever God plants him. In verse 20, when two years had elapsed. All right, when you put a pause on legal proceedings, there is no reason for it to take two years to ask the centurion what happened in Jerusalem. You don't need two years. Maybe ten days you can summon that centurion to come. Maybe five slow days to get to Jerusalem, five slow days to get back, take a little break in between. Two years he's been in prison. Why? Well, when Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. He was making political decisions, not judicial decisions. As we see this story work itself out, there is a storm that is remarkable, seems bigger than Paul, and indeed is bigger than Paul, as is true for all of us. There are storms that happen in our lives that are bigger than us, but I am here to declare that they are not bigger than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and He is at work in the storm. Well, years after that hurricane hit, I had the privilege of going down and serving, and there were those who served ahead of me. And something remarkable happened, something I've never experienced before. I've worked in the city. I've worked as a carpenter in the city. I brought tools down to New Orleans. My goal was to use those tools, leave those tools, and help build some house or some property back that had been, so just do my part. And we get into this old church that's kind of beat up, and we get in, I don't know if this was true for you, but we wore white t-shirts with I heart N-O on them in red. So that's our, that's our work shirts. I love New Orleans. And the remarkable thing is, is that when we walked out into these poor communities, these communities where drugs were being sold right in front of us, we were received like I've never been received in a non-Christian community with trust and love and privilege. I've worked in the city. I've had my tools stolen. They didn't want to steal our tools. In the morning, we would start out serving breakfast, and I just came for one week. I wasn't part, this is what the church did. 
This is what God did through the church in the storm. And I would stand there, and the guys who would sell drugs all day came over and held hands with us in the circle, and the cop who was driving by came and held hands with us in the circle, and we prayed together before we went to work, and then we served breakfast to the drug dealer and the cop at the same time. It's like, over this we agree that Jesus has come to help our town. Over this we agree these people are safe in Jesus Christ. God was writing a story of peace that was beyond my understanding. Don't you know that if you go through that with Christ, He will give you a pocket of peace and joy that makes no sense. I have longed for that for our church. That the community around us would see us as safe. The people who love us. The people who stand with us. Because all we're doing is testifying to the one who was safe, who protected us, who provided salvation for us. That's all we're doing is passing that along just like Paul did. Paul is not the hero of this story. God is the hero of this story. Jesus Christ is the hero of this story, and he just testifies about Jesus Christ constantly. I know one day I'll stand before Jesus, and I'll give an account for what I said this morning, and I'm here to declare that Jesus Christ will give you peace in the storm. Peace that lasts for eternity. And in a moment, two of my friends are going to be baptized to declare that their intention is to go through life's storms with Christ. Why don't you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for hope, for joy, for love. This world is filled with evil. We invent new ways to be evil, to be cruel to each other, to tear down. We hurt the people we love. We think in some ways that we'll be better if we're crushing someone else as long as we're not the one being crushed. And yet you came to heal, to save, to restore and redeem. Thank you for the possibility, for the time, for a moment in time when we can take our t-shirt and put it on and declare our love for people and our love for Jesus Christ. Would you call us even in the storms? In Jesus' name, amen.